So I'm going to start off with um, just asking you guys, uh, like, uh, you guys are always super, super gracious. Um, and um, I brought my family with me because uh, um, I love them. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, uh, they're a lot of fun. Um, uh, but so that my three-year-old could have some fun with her mom, I, I kept our, our almost our 11-month-old who's sleeping over there. So I might, if she wakes up, I might have to interrupt the, just the talk just a second to go put her back to sleep or, or whatever. Okay, so sorry, just apologizing um, now before, before we get going. Um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto the ages of all ages, amen. Can I share a little secret with you? I have actually never, um, to my knowledge or to my memory, in my memory, given a talk, um, a formal talk, like about purity. Um, although it's like my bread and butter, I mean, um, at least over 80% of people that I talk to in spiritual guidance and confession um, talk to me about their, their struggles to be pure. Over 90% of anyone in high school in North America has seen pornography. Um, over 50% of women um, have, have, have seen pornography. Like oftentimes we think it's like a guy thing, but it's not. Um, so, uh, so it's a really common thing, but I guess, uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's something we just don't talk about. When we first uh, uh, were, uh, you know, started the church downtown and we were looking for, uh, we were looking for like a building to buy to make it our church and so on. There was this building actually not too far from where our church is now, which was a theater uh, and it closed down. And so they were selling the building and it was actually a porn theater. So I guess back in the day... <laughs> when it wasn't so easily accessible, uh, you know, on a multitude of different media, I guess people, you know, actually would go to the theater to watch, um, to watch porn. But, you know, in all of this, I guess you have to ask yourself, what does Jesus say about all of this? And Jesus makes the standard pretty clear. I mean, it's not, it's not like, it doesn't seem like the, the tough part is ambiguity on like, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you who have, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's pretty clear. Jesus is saying that like, if you do a double take, you might as well have slept with her. And, and, and obviously it's not, it's gender, it's, you know, gender neutral. It can go either way, right? Um, so Jesus has tried to help us to draw the line in the sand for us and make it super clear. And, uh, and you could say like, well, Jesus, that's a really high standard. Like in, in Ephesians, St. Paul tells them, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality amongst you. Like what's a hint of sexual immorality? Well, a hint, like when you, when you, when you're, when you're taking like a university class, and a professor gives a hint to what is on the final. Do they like tell you what's on the final? Do they tell you like, okay, these are the, you know, question one is this, question two is that? No, they don't, right? 
But sometimes they'll put extra emphasis about something. They'll say it twice or three times, or sometimes they might say like, you might really want to go back and review lecture three, like the second half of lecture three. I'm just saying, you know, and stuff like that, right? That's what a hint is, right? So what's a hint of sexual immorality? Like, it's not the explicit thing. This is just what we just said, right? So what is it? Jesus tells us, like, if there's a sniff of it, if there's like, a, if there's like, you know, just the insinuation of it, like there's dirty jokes, and then there's jokes that just kind of hint about something. St. Paul says to us, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality amongst you. Jesus tells us, he who lo looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery for her in his heart. So the standard is pretty clear. The line in the sand is pretty clear between holiness and everything else. And the fathers, when they write about this, they often call this, they don't, often don't use the word lust. They often use the word unholiness. And what they're trying to make very clear in our minds, remember yesterday, For the, I feel there's a couple of new faces, but most of you were here yesterday. We we're talking about counterfeits. We we're talking about how temptation is actually a counterfeit, where the devil is trying to offer you something that isn't actually what you want. Like you're a shopkeeper, okay? You've got a corner store and some guy walks in, right? And he, and, 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 you know, and he gets like a, you know, a, a six pack and a bag of chips and he hands you a $20 bill you're sure hoping that that's a real $20 bill, right? See, what the devil is doing is he's offering us a fake that looks like the real. So, that's what we learned yesterday. So, in this context of purity and holiness, unholiness, lust, whatever we want to call it, what's the real and what's the counterfeit? Well, the counterfeit is lust. So, what's the real thing? Like, what are we... Like, what are we really longing for when we feel tempted by lust? I want to share something with you, okay? Um, if you read The Orthodox Afterlife by John Habib, in the appendix, appendix A is the story of, the, of, of, of Father Botros el Meeri. And he talks about, like, after his soul left his body, the demons were, were hanging on to him, and they were trying to drag him into Hades. Okay, I'm not going to go through the whole story and whatever. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and there's lessons that can be learned from it. Pope Shenouda has warned us several times not to take these things literally, but to learn lessons from them to drive us towards a holy life. But the point is this. Abuna Botros looks down at his, at his tunic that he's wearing and he notices stains. But the stains almost have faces. They almost have like a character. Like he can see... And when he looks carefully, he can see the faces, he recognizes them. He, he's, I know that guy, right? And he real, recognizes that these are the faces of demons that have, that have t been tempting him his whole life. And because the, because the stain is there, the demon who matches the stain, he comes and he holds onto him from that stain. And he's like dragging him into Hades, right? You know what it's like? Anybody who here has done like indoor rock climbing? Anybody? Indoor rock climbing? A whole handful of people, right? Why is it that you can scale a wall? 
like, what do they, they put stuff on the wall, right? They're called stubs. I had no idea what they were called. I had to ask somebody who's a pro. They're called stubs, right? And so because the stubs are there, you can hold on, right? Anybody here done a kitchen renovation? Anybody? Kitchen renovation? Sure, right? If you're lazy like me, we, like, we, we, we did the renovation, we, like, we gutted the kitchen, we redid the floors, we put the cabinets in, we did everything, we painted everything. The last step was to put the handles on. It took me like two months. You know, like when you're 96, uh-oh, when you're like 96% done, when you're like 90, then you just, you get lazy to do that last 4%, right? So for, for literally, my wife was going to kill me because for two months, we didn't put, I didn't put the little handles onto, so you, so you couldn't open the drawers. Like you'd, you'd have to like open the, open the cabinet from underneath to open the drawer from above, right? Because there was nothing to hold onto. The demons, they, they find something in us to hold on to. In the first prayer that the priest prays silently after the fraction, you know, like after the fraction, congregation says, Our Father who art in heaven. The priest says a prayer. In that prayer, he says, he says, destroy the works of the tempter within us and his movements which are implanted in us. So there's there's a gap, there's a need, there's a thirst, there's a hunger in me, and there's a demon who's matched himself to that hunger, and he knows how to get it. So if I can fill that hunger, he'll be like my kitchen cabinets that don't have anything to hold on to. He'll be like a wall with no stubs. There'll be nothing for him to hold on to. And that's going to be really important. We're going to get, we're going to, get to that. But what is it that I'm missing? When I feel tempted by lust, when I feel tempted by, what is it, what is it that I'm lacking? You know what it is? It's very simple. It's intimacy. Can I tell you a secret? How many people in the room here are married? The priests, I guess, myself. That's about it, right? Now, I'm gonna tell you something. And you may be surprised, and then when you think about it for one second, you won't be anymore. Guess what? People think that when they get married, they won't be tempted by lust anymore. No, <laughs> you'll just be tempted just as much as you were before, possibly. Right? I mean, think about it. Why, do, why are there so many people who are divorced, right? A part of it is because of unfaithfulness, right? Well, why are people unfaithful? Because they're tempted to go outside of their marriage, right? So let's, let's, let's do a couple of definitions so we're all on the same page here. What the church is aiming for, so there's, there is unholiness, lust, and so on. We'll define those in a minute. So what is the church aiming for? What is the church teaching us to do? It's teaching us to be chaste. What is chastity? Chastity, I'm, I'm using layman's terms, okay? I'm not gonna give you like theological definitions. For one, I'm not a theologian. For two, you know, we're just talking, we're just, we're just chatting, okay? So, what is chastity? Chastity is to have your eyes in one place. So married people are supposed to be chaste, they're supposed to keep their eyes in one place, which is their spouse. People who aren't married are supposed to keep their eyes in one place, which is Christ. What's lust? Lust is to desire something outside the will of God for me now. So lust is not exclusively sexual, but oftentimes we think of it as that. But lust, simply defined by the fathers of our church, is to desire something outside the will of God for me now. So I want something 
that's supposed to be in a month from now, or I want something that's supposed to be never, or I'm, I want something, that's what lust is. And the reason for that is because I'm here now. I'm not me two years from now or two years ago. I'm just me now. Tell you a story from Paradise of the Fathers. There's a monk sitting down at the, at the, at the table next to his elder. And his elder uh, sitting next to him and the monk says to him, man, I'm so hungry. I can't wait to eat this bowl of beans. I've been dreaming about it all day. So the elder looks at him and he tells him, go slaughter a chicken and cook it and eat it. And he says to him, Father, I can't, it's Lent. It's the great fast. He tells him, no, no, go slaughter a chicken and eat it. So he goes, chases the chicken, catches it, slaughters it, feathers it, cooks it, and eats it out of obedience. And he comes back and he tells his father, Father, why did you make me break my fast? And he told him, better for you to eat meat without lust than to eat beans with lust. So you've been dreaming about it all day, so do something different, right? So that shows us that lust is not just something which is something which is exclusively sexual, but anything to desire anything outside the will of God for me now. God has put me in this place at this time, and He wants me to live in this place at this time, because God exists you know, throughout all time, but how we relate to God is almost exclusively in the present. Another definition that will be helpful for us is eros. So there's th three, sometimes people say four Greek words for the word love. In English, we just have the word love. In Greek, we have agape, philo, eros, and sometimes people say storche, which is like affection uh, um, and so on, or charity. But uh, ag agape is like the altruistic love, but it's very impersonal. You, you, you're doing something for somebody, you expect nothing in return, but usually you don't even know who you're doing it for. Uh, philo is the f f familiar love and familial love, the love you have in your family, the love you have with your friends. It's reciprocal. You can't be friends with somebody who doesn't reciprocate. You know, you ask them how you're doing, they tell you, then they ask you how you're doing. If they never ask you, then they're selfish. It's hard to become, it's hard to deepen that friendship with them. The opposite also, if they never tell you how they're doing, same thing, right? So that's philo. Eros is erotic love. Most of us, we hear the word erotic, we think, oh, that must be, must be sinful. There is a thought that, that Eros is less than the other loves, but a lot of the fathers, including St. Basil, St. Anthony, St. Dionysius, okay, and this is a whole other talk that I've given like a zillion times on the theology of sexuality. That's like a whole other topic for another day, right? Talk about how Eros is, that God loves us with erotic love, and God created the world with erotic love. And erotic love, they say, is like, is, is like a creationist love born out of deep attraction and deep intense feelings that are irrational. They can only be experienced and they can only be given and received, but because they're irrational, they, they can almost not be described. And so there isn't that much that's written about Eros, but we believe that God created the world out of divine Eros. God loves us with an erotic love, and that's all I'll say, all I'll say about that. So what we're doing in our sexuality is modeling our sexuality based on God's erotic love. That's what we're doing, and because it's an irrational love, we're participating in that erotic love which is deeply rooted in attraction. So if, if, that's, if chastity is to have my eyes in one place, and that's what erotic love is, then I'm called as a Christian 
as a Christian, I'm called to have my eyes in one place, and that's with God only. And that's why when I turn my eyes and I look at another woman or man, depending on the gender, okay, I then, I'm, I'm going outside of my chastity, right? Chastity is not celibacy. Celibacy is to take a vow. Celibacy means not to have any sexual relationship whatsoever. That's celibacy. Uh, people who are single are also celibate if they're chaste. People who are married are chaste, but not celibate. The most, the seminal work on chastity is by, um, um, is by um, Urumaya, um, the friend of uh, St. Justina, Bishop of Carthage, St. Cyprian. The seminal, if you want to read about chastity, Saint Cy you can read St. Cyprian, um, uh, the, who is the friend of St. Justina, and we're going to talk about her uh, in a minute. So there's some definitions just to, just to kind of um, make it a little bit easier for us. And you're going to say, but intimacy like with God, how does that work? That's like, or eros with God, I don't know, like that's like, it's kind of way out there, Abuna. Like, what do you, like, what, what do you mean? I mean this. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus is saying, I have a really special relationship with my Father. There's things that are between my Father and me, and nobody else, the Father hasn't revealed them to anyone else. Last night, we were talking about, if you want to follow Jesus, there's going to come a point where you're going to have to give up father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, yes, your own life also. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Yesterday, we were saying, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, you, you're going to have to put your pleasures second. You're going to have to put your desires second. And God will give you a hundredfold. Today we're talking about one of the things that God is going to share with you. Now you've made this life commitment to God. Now you've said, I renounce the world. If you look at any, I didn't mention this yesterday, I should have. If you look at any manual of spiritual life, Unseen Warfare, Ascetical Homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian, the Philokalia, the art of prayer, the writings, the pseudo Macarius, or the 50 letters of St. Macarius, the letters of St. Anthony, all of them, the first chapter or second chapter is about renunciation of the world or renunciation of the self. Any monk who's going to go to the monastery, what do they have to do? They have to leave the world, right? With the recent happenings in the monasteries and so on, recently, Pope Tawadras put out a, a ban for all monks to have any social media. Why? Because he wants them, they've left the world and the world is chasing after them and he wants to protect them to, to be able to have what they went out there to have in the first place, right? I'm not a monk, I don't understand how these things work and so I'm not here to comment on any of that, but... This is not just for monks and nuns. All of us, if we want to follow God, we're going to have to leave the world. Why? Because when you come into the presence of God, then he says to you what he says about Abraham. What, is, what does God say about Abraham before the three angels visit him? 
when, he's, when God is contemplating to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, shall I do this without revealing it to my friend Abraham? In Amos, it says that God never does anything without revealing it to his friends, the prophets. Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you my disciples, but I call you my friends. The word for friend there is like the word we would use for best friend. You know, the word we would feel like my dearly beloved. Look at how Jesus speaks about the Father. He says that there's nothing that the Father knows that He hasn't revealed to the Son, and the Son can reveal it to whomever He wants. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, nor does anyone know the and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. God wants to have a relationship with you of intimacy. What's intimacy? Sexuality? Sure, that can be part of it. Okay, what makes sexuality special? Because you, it's something you do with one other person and that only that person. If you do it with everybody, then it kind of doesn't become special anymore, right? How about a friend who comes and confides in you something? That's intimacy. The first time my dad came and asked me for advice, I was like, blown away. My dad's like an amazing man, a towering presence. He's incredibly confident, very smart, very successful. He's a great guy. So the first time he came and asked me for advice, man, that took our relationship to a whole new level. He's still my dad. I still, I still look up to him, but we became, we became friends. God wants to be friends with you. Has it ever happened in your life that God shared something with you that you felt it wasn't right to share this with other people? That's intimacy. That's intimacy. What happened to our intimacy with God? You know, early in my marriage, like after we came, right when we came back from our honeymoon, I would finish my work and I would run home to go and be with my wife. And then life gets busy and so on and she has things on the go and I have things on the go and this and that, you know what I mean? And then we find that our intimacy starting to break down, right? There are tons of things that are between me and my wife only and we wouldn't share them really with anyone else. You can say, okay, but Abuna, that's what you read from Matthew, that's the relationship between the son and the father. But like that's the Holy Trinity, like they're, they are... They are a trinity. They are one unit. They are one. Like they're, I'm not like part of the trinity. Hmm. Am I? Am I not? Look at John 17, 21. Jesus is praying. Like this is his, his dying wish. His wish, his last prayer and request from God before the cross. Okay. Is that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me. And I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Okay, I hope this isn't scandalous for you. I hope this isn't too scandalous for you, okay? But like biology 101, okay? Like one person goes inside the other, right? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying 
that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That, that same level of degree of intimacy that exists in sexuality exists in the Trinity. They are, like St. Paul says, like you can't sleep with a harlot because then you become one flesh with her. The Holy Trinity is that united that they, that they are one. They're seamlessly one. There's no division between, between the Father and the Son, and yet they are distinct. So it's like a mystery that how that can be. But, but forget about Trinitarian theology for a minute. God wants you and me to have that same degree of unity and intimacy with God. So when I turn to my lustful desires, it's because I don't have that. So I'm trying to fill the gap. I'm trying to fill the gap. Now, what's, what's so characteristic about this intimacy is it's an it's a intimacy of outpouring of love, of enormous, of a love that's so abundant, it's just pouring out into the other person. So it's a, 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 it's, it's a giving. But the world, this our, our highly over-sexualized world, has convinced us that what we need is sex, not intimacy. So you find even in marriage, and I'm sure the fathers will tell you, lots and lots and lots and lots of people are trying to improve their sex life, but they have no intimacy, and they're not satisfied, and they're still struggling to be pure. But what they're lacking, what I'm lacking, is intimacy, either with another person or with God. And that intimacy can be sexual in the context of marriage, or it doesn't have to be. When you have a group of friends that you read the Bible with, that you pray with, that you open your heart to them and they pray for you, and you pray for them and you carry each other, that's intimacy. That can be enough. That can be enough to protect you from sexual sin. To have that group of friends. You can add to that to make each other accountable in your holiness, in your purity, and so on, which we'll talk about when we get to the, the practical application. But now we're just talking, now we're just talking about the, the practical things, right? You see, you and me, there's no such thing as a Christian who's single. It doesn't exist. Like, like, like you, you might say, yeah, but, uh, sorry, like, I'm, I'm, maybe you didn't see my finger, but there's no wedding band there. I'm not married. No, you're not, actually. You're betrothed. What does that mean? Like engaged? Yeah, almost, kind of, not really. So in, old, in the olden days, right, and we still see this in like rural parts of Africa and stuff like that, right? If, if I wanted to marry my wife, her name is Mary. So what I would do is I would go to my father-in-law, his name is Naim, I'd go to Dr. Naim, and I would tell him, I want to marry your daughter, Mary. And he would say, oh, Mary is a very good girl, she went to university, she's a doctor, she's this. He'd play up her credentials, and then he'd say, Mary should be at least four cows, maybe five, right? It's like the price of Mary, right? So then we agree on a price, we bargain back and forth, but I can't bargain too much because then like, you know, like I'm not like, I, I don't think she's actually worth it, you know, so, right? And then we agree on a price, okay, five cows. And then I go off to work to earn my five cows. 
right? And then I come, I pay the bride price. I pay the bride price so I can, right? And then I take her from her father's house and bring her to my father's house. And then the, the marriage is complete, okay? So that agreement that I make with Dr. Naim is called betrothal, which is soluble only by death or divorce. It's only soluble by death or divorce. So it's kind of like being married, but I haven't, I haven't paid my part yet, so I can't, right? But why, is, why do we do this? Well, we do this betrothal thing because he agreed with me for five cows, and then Andre comes and he says, I like Mary, and then, right? And then, oh no, it's my father-in-law who has the accent. Andre says, I like Mary. My father-in-law says, yes, but she was five cows. Will you give me six, right? And then here I, here I am working my tail off to get my five cows, right? And little do I know, Rich Andre here already has his six cows, and right, I live in another village, and I find out three years later that my my bet my betrothed wife is is gone. Right, so to protect to protect the agreement, there was this betrothal. Right, there was this betrothal. So Jesus has come, and he has paid the bride price for you.